Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 276 with Alex Grodnick. I think you'll enjoy this conversation because Alex is talking about how to not take no for an answer in the best, most uplifting possible way. And this was a great topic back in episode 16 with Andrea Waltz when she talked about going for no. And I think it's worth talking again because I just love the way Alex reframes it in such a cool way. So you'll learn one, why no is not the end, but only the beginning. Two, the prescription to overcome your fear of rejection. And three, how to reframe the no. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we reference here, it's over awesomeatyourjob.com slash F276. Now, here's Alex's story. Alex began his career as an analyst at J.P. Morgan Private Bank. And after completing that program, he moved into investment banking at Houlihan Loki in their restructuring group. Alex went on to work at a pioneering digital media firm before getting his MBA at UCLA Anderson. And Alex grew up in Park City, Utah and loves to ski and golf. So thanks to Alex for sharing his time with us. And thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. Here is Alex. Alex, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Pete, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Oh, me too. And I think we've got a lot of great stuff to cover. But first, I want to get your take on. I've learned that you had the idea for Uber years before the Uber people founded Uber. What's the story here? (laughs) Yeah, so I was actually really fortunate. I got to grow up in Park City, Utah, which for those of you that don't know, is a small ski town about 30 miles outside of Salt Lake. It's where all of the 2002 Winter Olympics skiing events were held. So, you know, it's a little ski town. Everything just revolves around skiing. And once a year there, there's also happens to be Sundance Film Festival in February. And so growing up there with Sundance, it's a fun time. There would be hundreds of thousands of people, of you know, movie stars and Hollywood people that would come to Park City. And it was kind of a unique period. And so going to high school there, I saw, man, my little town doesn't really have the infrastructure built to have hundreds of thousands of people here at a given time. And one of the things I saw is that there's no taxi system. There's no way for anyone to get around. So I had this idea, hey, my mom has an SUV. What if I turned her car into a taxi during Sundance for the two weeks that that Sundance happened? And so I went to Home Depot and I got some fluorescent letters that said taxi. And I put them you know, on on the side of the car, on the back of the car. And uh, also, my dad did some work with uh, with police in one of his prior careers. And so we had one of those like undercover spinning lights that you plug into your cigarette lighter and like, you know, it magnets to the top of your car oh, wow. and completely illegal, but would absolutely blind people when they saw it, but would definitely get people's attention. So I'm armed with fluorescent taxi letters all over the car and this spinning red police light. And I set out into Park City and I'm picking people up. And it wasn't even 30 seconds before I picked my first person up and they were from England and they got in the car and I drove them somewhere five minutes away. And they said, okay, how much do we owe you? And I kind of froze and I was like, ooh, I hadn't really thought about how to charge. So I said, well, you can just give me a tip. And they gave me $20. There you go. And, and I said, wow, I just made $20 for driving someone you know, for about five minutes in my car. Maybe there's something to this. And it didn't stop from there for the first probably six hours 
I maybe had like 95% utilization, just dropping someone off, picking the next person up. It, I mean, because there were no cars for anyone to take. So uh, I came home on that first night about eight o'clock. My parents were out to dinner and my brother, I was like 17 at the time. And I think my brother was probably 13. And uh, my brother's there and I roll out, you know, must've been like six or $700 on the floor. And he and I are like rolling around in it. Like we're Richie Rich. <laughs> and I'm like, man, Jake, like there's something to this. And so I go back out and I'm driving down main street of my town with this light spinning and it says taxi all over my car. And before you know it, the police pull me over and they're like, you know, where's your business license? Where's uh, your, your regular license? What are you doing here? And I'm like, you know, I go to high school here. I'm not trying to do this. And they're like, just stop doing this. This is ridiculous. You can't do any of these things. You can't, you, I mean, you have an illegal police light. You're saying taxi. So I go home and I'm like, man, I have to keep this. I can't take a no here. So uh, I went back to Home Depot and I got some letters that said free rides taxi and took off the light still going around town doing this. And then I got pulled over again and they said, you can't say taxi. You're not a taxi. You're not a, you don't have a business license. So fine. Got rid of the taxi, still say free rides. And it did nothing to deter demand. So for the next two weeks, I'm driving nonstop after school, driving till three, four in the morning, picking people up. I got three of my friends involved in it. They took their parents' SUVs and they slapped free rides on it. And we had kind of a militia of high school students driving people around town. And, uh, you know, now fast forward to today, Uber actually brings in a bunch of cars and, you know, there's Ubers in Park City and they, they bring in a bunch of stuff for the festival. But when I did this, there was nothing. And so it's kind of like, I always, uh, I'll bump into some police or something when I go back to, to Park City and kind of everyone remembers, uh, remembers this story. That's fun. Well, so with the militia then, you had multiple cars doing numerous nights unimpeded by the police once you called it free rides? Yeah, that was, it. I mean, they, I still got pulled over one more time and uh, they took about a half hour and they came back to us and they said, okay, just be safe. Yeah, <laughs> uh, there was that, that was the com a complete loophole. Oh well, that's that's fun and intriguing, and but well, I love it. So it's it's not just like you thought of it; you really took some action, and uh, that's that's pretty cool. And I, I only thought of uh, the Airbnb concept before Airbnb existed, and uh, I had a, a buddy make a little. PowerPoint talking about what he thought it would take to get the software up and going. And we're like, oh, that's kind of cool. Maybe later. <laughs> and, and then, so that's cool. Take it action. That's awesome. And so I want to talk uh, a, a large part about you and, and not taking no, sort of as you as you illustrated here. But first, I want to get a, a little bit of, of, of context prior to. So we, you got Wall Street Oasis, and that is a, a website I've been to many times. But could you orient folks? What's the site about it? And what's your new podcast there about? Yeah, absolutely. So Wall Street Oasis is a big finance community on the website, on the internet. It's been around for over 10 years, and it's one of the most active finance communities online. It gets about a million unique visitors per month with people coming there looking for topics like how to break into investment banking, how to study for the GMAT, industry group-specific stuff within investment banking, private equity, hedge funds. It's pretty much the go-to place for people beginning a finance career. And recently we've launched a podcast. And so the way that I came to it is I just graduated from business school. I got my MBA from UCLA and I started a podcast and the guys at Wall Street Oasis heard it. They liked it. And they said, why don't you just have your podcast come live on our site? And so for the last six months, we've been having a podcast where we speak with 
really just influential business leaders. Some, most of them are in finance, but a lot aren't. And we talk about secrets to success, the ups, the downs, optimal career paths, and really just life in general with um, founders, people like the CEO uh, and founder of Google Voice, investment bankers who love investment banking, people who used to work in investment banking and have left for entrepreneurial pastures or greener pastures, all sorts of uh, just interesting human stories. Intriguing. So optimal career paths... Have you sort of synthesized any kind of key takeaways or themes that, that show up again and again when it comes to getting an optimal career path? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. A lot of the kind of the key takeaways from the podcast kind of come congealed to one of them is like really finding the right people who compliment you. And that was something that the Craig Walker, he's the guy who founded Google Voice and who, who now has been a, a serial entrepreneur. But, you know, he attributes a lot of the success that he's had in his career to positioning himself around just other smart people, people that complement his skill sets. And, you know, we've also had discussions about, you know, the importance of networking with your peers and not just networking with the guys who are running the show, but networking with your peers can be as beneficial as networking with bosses because as you and your peers progress, they're eventually going to be the ones running the show. And so that's also super important. We talk about breaking down success and how defining success is really important and how putting a process around that. So lots of uh, interesting tidbits that have come from the podcast, which has been really, really fun to do and, and get these firsthand. That is cool. Yes. Well, so I'm intrigued when it comes to career paths. So I've been to Wall Street Oasis for all sorts of little questions. It seems like Google loves it. So, hey, that's cool. All sorts of questions. I remember when I was researching dress shoes, it seemed like many, many forum posts had to do with dress shoes and the uh, the hierarchy of, of prestige or quality to them. But I think a much more substantive question is when it comes to MBAs, Masters of Business Administration degrees, you got one and you're thinking a lot about career paths and, and career advice. I know this is a hot topic. I know people who got an MBA and regret it say, why did I spend that time and money? I know people who got an MBA and say they were the best two years of my life. I figured out so much stuff. It's been so instrumental in opening doors. What's your take on that one? Yeah, it's a good question. It's a tough question. It's a unique question. It's different for every single person. And I think if you go to a top 30 program, right? I mean, there's 25, 30 great business schools. It's going to be very tough to regret it in the long-term picture. I mean, it is a action-packed, very, very fast-moving, fun couple of years. I mean, the experiences that you have are life-changing. The people that you meet are life-changing. But you're getting at a good point. It is expensive. You have you might be giving up. You know, look at look at my perspective. I gave up a job where I was making, you know, six figures for two years, and then you're paying six figures to go to school. So this is a huge, huge commitment. Really on the financial return side, it makes a lot of sense if you come from a I don't know, I'm going to call it obscure background, just not a traditional background that, or a traditional background, but you want to move into a different career path. So you want to go work for a big company. So say you want to go work for Bain or a different management consulting company or an investment bank or Amazon. Amazon was actually the number one recruiter out of my class. These are window jobs and windows open up to get these jobs right after undergrad and then they, and then they close. And then another window opens up again right after business school. And so if you want to go work for GE or Amazon or JP Morgan, great. You go to business school, 
you come into business school, you leave your job paying 80, 90, $100,000, and you get a job that pays you $200,000. And it's a pretty quick return on investment, right? From my perspective, I left a job paying me hundreds of thousands of dollars. And now I go to business school and I spent another $100,000. And now I'm at a job that's paying me literally hundreds of dollars per week. So my return is going to be a little bit longer, but there's no way that I regret going to business school. The connections and experiences that I had, I think are going to be fruitful for me for my entire life. You know, I went to business school at UCLA. I plan on living my whole life in Los Angeles. So these connections, you know, the 50, 100 connections that I have are really going to, I think, uh, prove beneficial for me throughout my career. Okay. That's cool. Thank you. Well, one more appetizer, if I may, before we, we jump into the the meat of things. And I would love to get your take. You know, bankers and finance folks, there are some associations and some stereotypes, whether they come from movies or the imagination of folk. So having lived it and seen a lot of commentary around it through Wall Street Oasis. What general tidbits might you share in terms of when it comes to banker perception and stereotypes? Uh, Which of them are generally true versus generally false versus really vary a lot person to person? Yeah. So I did banking for a short time in New York, but mostly I did it in in Los Angeles. And, you know, while investment bankers are, are pretty similar across, I mean, you're going to, you're going to have much more stereotypical investment bankers in New York than than you are in LA. But, you know, just like anything else, stereotyping and grouping people is is kind of a, you know, like a lazy way to look at it. You know, every single person's unique, but I can tell you that most investment bankers tend to be intelligent, driven, and uh, bitter, you know, (laughs) bitter after, bitter after one year on the job, I would say. Optimistic, pie-eyed, optimistic, zero years into the job. And then after one year, uh, maybe a little bit. You say bitter, like bitter about what or in what ways? You know, it's tough. You have thought for so long that you want to do investment banking and you get this job and really you're just elated and they're paying you lots of money. I mean, you make you know well into the $100,000 your first year out of undergrad and you think, oh man, I'm going to go really just light the world on fire here. But then you start to realize that a big piece of that large compensation really is to compensate you for giving up your entire life. So you really have very, very little clarity into when you're going to be working and when you're not going to be working. I mean, basically the idea is you're going to be working around the clock. I mean, there were, I can't tell you how many times there were when it's Friday at 530 and I'm thinking, yes, I am getting out of here. I'm going to go get dinner with my girlfriend. I text her, let's get dinner, cancel your plans. And 15 or 20 minutes later, it's you got to make that terrible phone call where, hey, sorry, I actually got a bunch of work. And not only am I not going to see you tonight, I'm not going to see you tomorrow. I'm not going to see you Sunday either. And so that gets old. And, you know, investment banking, it's a it's an incredible place to begin your career. They say it's like dog years. You get seven years worth of experience for every one year of work. And, and it, it is. You, you learn a lot. You get incredible access to management teams and investors and boards of directors and it's, you're at the top level of the capital structure, but you have to sacrifice a lot for it. And uh, it's, a, it's definitely a trade-off that uh, you know, people are usually not fully aware of when they're uh, making the decision to get into it. Okay. Well, well, thank you. Well, cool. So now I've sort of scratched the itch of curiosity. I had a few things I wanted to hear you tackle. So now I want to hear a little bit about one of your, your superpowers, which is not taking no for an answer. What do you mean by that? And 
how can we implement some of this wisdom? Yeah, I mean, what do I mean by not taking no? It's it's pretty simple. If someone tells you no, for me, that gets me excited because it's like, okay, now my skills and expertise get to shine. I get to find a creative way, a loophole, a workaround, just like I did with that uh, taxi story at the beginning. But it's pretty much what my entire career has been based off of, of just not taking no in chasing you know the goals and accomplishments that you want to achieve. And so as applied in my life, you know, uh, I got into a college that was kind of above my, uh, my punching weight. Then I, got, I graduated from that college in 2009, and I got into uh, investment banking right in the middle of the financial crisis. You know, and then uh, I got a different job in investment banking. And, uh, and now, I, after business school, you know, I'm a first-time entrepreneur. I've got a startup. We're raising venture financing for it. And uh, I've been told no probably over 100 times trying to raise money for it. And uh, it's exciting for me when that happens, because that's when you start to uh, get creative. Yeah, that's cool to hear. And there's so much to unpack there. When you say you heard no over a hundred times, this is just bringing me back to when uh, I wrote my first book. It was about leadership and student organizations. I wrote it in college. It's it's available for free at studentleadership.com, but not super relevant to what we're doing here. And it was interesting because I, I wrote all of these query letters, these, these one-page notes to to publishers and agents. And like day after day after day, I would get a bundle of letters back in the in the mail, old-fashioned snail mail, that's saying no, 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 in differing sorts of ways. And, and occasionally they're like, yes, go ahead and send me a proposal. And, and uh, one turned into a, a deal, which I ended up declining and self-publishing anyway. But it was very therapeutic for me in terms of saying, you know what? This doesn't really hurt or sting that much hitting it again and again and again. And so you have called that rejection therapy. I don't know if that's an Alex original or if you're borrowing that from somewhere, but I love that turn of a phrase. Can you expand upon that? Yeah. Yeah. Rejection therapy. It's not my phrase. It's, it's, uh, it's out there in the public domain, but it's really just reducing the fear of rejection by exposure, by exposing yourself to it. You know, similar to someone who's afraid of germs, you're afraid of germs and you go and you touch you know, the, the railway going down to the subway in New York City every day, over time, you're not going to be afraid of germs any longer. So it's desensitizing yourself to that fear. And it doesn't have to be big things. There's really only one rule to it, is that you need to be rejected by another person every day. And so really asking someone for a stick of gum or a ride across town or to borrow 50 cents or for a high five or to take a picture with you. All of these things in the beginning are hard to do. It's hard to ask someone for a stick of gum. By day five, by day six, by day seven, it's definitely not hard anymore. And all of a sudden, bigger things, asking for promotions at work or raises at your job or someone to go out on a date with you become not hard. You become desensitized to being afraid of no. That's great. That's a powerful thought there. And so I guess I'm wondering a little bit when it comes to all of this this asking, is there a risk of becoming a taker, you know, in terms of you're just are freely asking and having so much fun with it that you're sort of receiving more than you're given out in the, I don't know, the professional or or a karmic context? Yeah, of course there is. And you have to be mindful of that. I mean, we're all human beings. We all want things and we all like, we all generally like to help others. And so if you make it easy for someone to help you, 
that's usually a pretty good thing. And they're usually pretty amendable to doing that. On the same side, if someone asks you for something going through this process, you become more humble. There's a sense of humility that kind of comes over you as you go through this rejection process, because you start to see that really no one cares. Like if you ask someone for something and, or like, you know, you raise your hand in a class or you ask a question in a meeting, you might think it's a big deal, but everyone is really so concerned with themselves and so caught up in, in, you know, what they're trying to get, get and their goals and their achievements that no one's thinking about your silly question or something you asked them for. And so really you just come to the realization that it just doesn't matter. And by putting yourself out there, there's really only good to become from it. And yes, of course, you don't want to like be that guy that's, you know, asking, asking, asking and bothering people and pestering people. But, you know, there's a fine balance to it. And I'm sure the listeners of this podcast are smart enough to uh, determine, you know, that balance for themselves. Okay. And so now I want to zoom back to, you said, when you hear a no, you get kind of excited. And so, and you said that's because it seems like it doesn't even register that that this is the end or that the door has been closed to you, but rather you're being presented with an interesting challenge. Can you expand upon that a little bit in terms of, you know, what's going on in your brain and the emotional makeup when you hear the no? Yeah. So there's obviously something missing inside. There's something amiss inside of me that (laughs) I need to fill it up with, uh, you know, challenges all day long. But, you know, that's a story for another podcast. (laughs) But yeah, really, the interesting part is, okay, so you get told no. And to a lot of people, that's the end of it. To me, that's really the beginning of it. Because now it's like, okay, my creative juices start to flow, and you get to think, how can I get around this? And so it's not even something that I'm doing consciously. It's just like the taxi story. It's you tell me I can't have taxi on my car. And immediately, my mind just says free rides. I'm not you know, afraid that the police have me pulled out of the car on the side of the street. I'm thinking, okay, how can I keep this going? How can I get around this? Very similar to what I told you about raising capital for the startup I'm working at. This is something I'm going through right now. You know, like I said, we've sent, we've had hundreds of conversations, at least. No, 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 no at breakfast, no at lunch, no at dinner, no at cocktails. And I thought, okay, clearly there needs to be a better way to do this. And so I actually recently came up with a better way that I just started implementing. So I don't really have success metrics around it yet, but I've been asking a lot of these investors instead of, Hey, you know, can we uh, have a meeting for the startup? I say, Hey, do you want to be a guest on my podcast? And Pete, it's amazing. All of these big time major venture capitalists, they love talking about themselves and (laughs) they want to be on the podcast. And so I say, Hey, will you be on the podcast? And they say, Oh my, I'm honored. I'd love to be on the podcast. Send me your startup deck. I'd love to look at that as well. It's like, it's incredible the results that we're seeing. You know, we went from like seeing like 10% success rates up to close to 40% success rates. And so it's early days. I don't have, you know, millions of dollars of funding to show for it yet, but invite me back in a few more months and uh, I'm sure I will. That's cool. Certainly. And I, I find that with the podcast analogy, well, it's not an analogy, the practice <laughs> that you're employing, I, I could kind of relate to in that it, it's really just so much a matter of is your first kind of request or impression one in which you are giving, you're offering something versus you're taking something. And, and it's intriguing to me how I suppose when folks reach out to me 
with a guest pitch, like, uh, hey, I want to be on your show, or I'm a publicist that I represent this client, and I want to be on your show. It's like, you know, I'm automatically biased to saying no, because I don't know, 95 plus percent of those requests are just um, fall dead. So nice job, Alex, you got in, you're an elite, five percent are there. So I was compelled, you know, that was because it was relevant and authoritative and engaging. And I'd heard of um, Wall Street Oasis, like, oh, cool. Yeah, let's talk. So that worked out. But uh, on the flip side, if someone has is kind of being generous, like, hey, would you like to appear on my podcast? Like, oh, well, yes, thank you. And then it's just sort of naturally inside me and, and vice versa is what I'm seeing. Robert Cialdini, author of Influence, would vouch for this. Is like, there's this natural reciprocity. It's like, you know what? Someone gave me something and I'm inclined to say yes because, you know, it's beneficial for me. So sure, I'll say yes. And then as a result, I, I get to know that person. I've got a bit of a relationship with that person. I like that person having had a little bit of a, a back and forth. And I kind of want to reciprocate. It's like, you know, that person was helpful to me. I, I feel like it would just only be right for me to, if possible, try a little harder to maybe find a potential fit in the podcast for, for them and to say, hey, this is what we're going for. You give me some topics. Those aren't any good. Give me some more time. You know, it's like suddenly, whereas they had to like nail it the first time with the, the perfect thing I needed to hear. Now it's like, I'm helping them. It's like, no, no, move it a little over this way so we can find a fit. Yeah, it's, I mean, and that's exactly what I'm talking about. It's reframing the no. And so it's beneficial to you. You know, I think, I think Pitbull uh, has this uh, lyric in one of his songs where he says, you know, ask for money, get advice, ask for advice, get money twice. And so, you know, really just repositioning, thinking creatively, instead of just asking, you know, what can you do for me? Maybe offering what you can do for them. That's great. And, and could you give us a few more examples? So, you know, we, we've talked very specifically you know, about, hey, if you happen to have a podcast or a media channel at your disposal, that's great. Go ahead and offer that up. But what are some other kind of gifts that you recommend offering that, that can help you door openers? You know, like in terms of cold emailing people, there's, there's, kind of, there's kind of an art to it. And really, you have to be very clear with, with your ask. And so... When you're sending someone a cold note, you have to say, well, what am I looking for here? Yes, at the end of the day, I'm looking for a job or you know, I'm looking for an investment in my company. But there's sometimes three, four, five, you know, maybe even 10 steps in between the cold email and the end goal. And so I like to take baby steps. And so the first email says, hey, can we have a 10-minute call? And if we're in the same city, hey, can we ha- uh, grab a 10-minute coffee? And really just by making it very, very simple and very clear, a very short email, uh, I find that people are, are much more receptive to that. If you make it easy, you can have a calendar invite, you know, already in the email, so that it's 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 really straightforward and simple for them. And from there, you take the call and you turn it into, into an in-person meeting. You take the in-person meeting and you send them, you know, your investor deck or your business pitch, and you take that and you you know have them meet, you know, one of your co-founders or one of your advisors, and and you know it just it kind of snowballs from there. But you have to be very clear with your ask in the in the beginning and and be very succinct with it as well. Oh, that's good. That's good. So that's in the in the ASCII phase in terms of sort of upgrading folks' level of commitment and investment and, and helpfulness toward you. And I'd love to hear if you have a few more perspectives in terms of what you can give, what, what you can offer that is embraced, whether it's a media opportunity or, or what else. Yeah. You know, it's funny. No one even asks the size of my podcast when I'm saying, hey, will, will you be on my on my podcast? So I mean, it's, it's growing. And I said, we've been doing it for six months now, but it really, it could be an upstart. And I say, Hey, come on my podcast or, 
hey, I'd love to interview you on my blog, or I would love to, you know, get a comment uh, of yours on my Facebook channel. You know, there's there's really so many ways to engage someone today. And like I said, people are usually very interested in helping others. And they're also interested in talking and adding advice and talking about themselves, something everyone, a common thing. Humans love talking about themselves. So if you can get them, instead of asking for what you know you might really want in step six or seven, just ask them for their advice, how they got to where they are, what they did. People are generally pretty receptive to that. And And fine, if you have some type of outlet, you've got a Facebook channel, you've got a podcast, you've got a YouTube channel, people would love, be honored as they, as they tell me to come on it and help you. Absolutely. And so then I want to get your take then when instead of maybe, let's say you don't get a no, but you just get the silence, you know, it's sort of like if you try to make a call and it's a voicemail or an email or a letter, or whatever your, your mechanism, a tweet, and, and there's just sort of nothing on the other end in a way. I'm right with you. Like, oh, you hear a no and that sparks the creative wheels turning. Like, oh, okay, well, let's figure out an, an alternative win. You know, what happens if if it's just sort of like you didn't even connect with them in the first place? Yeah, and that's a great question, Pete. And that's probably the more common scenario. And what I tell you is what I tell, I mean, I tell my brother this. My brother is uh, as an actor and I tell him about, you know, emailing people and he does it sometimes and he'll come back to me and, and say, you know, I, I emailed them and they didn't email me back. So forget them. That opportunity's dead. And I said, I say, Jake, you sent them one email. Like, do you respond to every single email? You have to send them two, three, four emails. I mean, not, you know, every day, but like send an email, wait eight or nine days, send another email. Hey, just wanted to make sure you saw this. Would love to get your advice. Another week, week and a half. Hey, sorry for bothering you. This will be my last time. I really just, I would love to get your insight. And, you know, people are busy. They don't always respond to strangers on the first email, but give them the benefit of the doubt. They generally will respond uh, if you send them, you know, a sequence of emails. And you know, there's tools that you can help you to do this. Emailing tools like uh, like Mixmax is is the one I use, uh, and you can send an original email. And if they don't respond, you can set it for seven, eight, nine, ten days later to send a follow up email. But yeah, I mean, I say getting ghosted. You know, there's. It's just, that's again, it's, it's persistence. It's kind of also not taking no, but, you know, softly, not uh, being a burden to, to someone. Well, that's encouraging to hear that in your own life and results of, of emailing, you found that if you do have the persistence to, to do a, a triple over time, you say more often than not, you uh, get you something. Know, I don't, I'm not going to say more than 50%, so not, so less often than not, but it's a numbers thing. If you send enough emails and yes, you have, call it a 40% success rate over your three email chain, then yeah, those are pretty great numbers. I mean, cold emails in the world do not have a 40% success rate. I would assume they have like a low single digit success rate. So if you can get above that, you know, by imploring some of these tactics I'm talking about, then that's really great. That's cool. And, and when is it time to say, you know, they've said no, and I've, I've kind of come back with a, a number of creative alternatives. When is it time to say, you know, goodbye for now. I would say, you know, sometimes like like three contacts is, is probably enough. You're not going to, you don't really want to do more than that. And it's also not to say that that's dead. When you're playing these numbers games and you're sending, you know, a quantity of, of notes and emails and calls, sometimes things come back from the dead. You know, things from weeks and months old. Once you have enough uh, irons in the fire, all of a sudden, like old things start to come back alive. And it's really cool when that happens. It's an incredible testament to just like the effort and the 
the dividends that it starts to pay over time. Certainly. And, and I, I can admit and attest that when it comes to, to podcast guest pitches, I have pulled emails like months, <laughs> months old because I saw them and I thought, oh, that's kind of interesting. Okay. I'll put them in the, maybe I'll look at it later when, you know, the guest pipeline is, is looking a little light folder. And then when I do look at them closer and see some, some video, I go, oh, wow, what an engaging personality. Yeah, let's do it. And so that totally happens on, on my end there. Uh, so very good. Well, well, tell me, Alex, anything else you want to make sure to cover before we shift gears and talk about some of your favorite things? Uh, you know, I really just implore everyone to try the rejection therapy. It's pretty easy. Uh, also, another great way to do it is when you go out you know, and grab a turkey sandwich for lunch. Uh, you say, hey, may I please have a discount on this? And you will be amazed by how often you get 10% off of a turkey sandwich. And people love to do it. And uh, it's kind of a funny funny thing, if you know, because people don't aren't usually asked that. And so that's an interesting way to get it. But I really just want to leave with the saying that you'll never get what you don't ask for. Thank you. Okay, well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Yeah, I've got a bunch of quotes. Actually, I can remember the one from my childhood that was my favorite was, the happiness of your life is based on the quality of your thoughts. And I really like that quote because it kind of goes with that, you know, happiness is a choice. Uh, It's not um, a right. It's not something that like you're automatically going to get. You need to choose to be happy and you need to seek that out in life. And so I make a conscious effort every day to remind myself that you can choose to be happy. And I also like a quote from Henry Ford, where he says, if you think you can, or you think you can't, you're right. And how about a favorite book? You know, I just read Shoe Dogs, which was the the, the, the Nike Phil Knight memoir. Just, again, a story of persistence. Oh my God, the, the obstacles that he overcame in starting Nike. I mean, and not over a short period of time, basically over like 10 years, the fights with the manufacturing facilities in Asia and people trying to knock off his shoes and the retailers. I mean, it was, it was endless and he just kept going forward. So I really, I really love that. And how about a favorite tool? Something that helps you be more awesome at your job? Yeah. So I mentioned Mixmax, which is the email and calendar sending tool. It's real simple. It's like, you know, one of these things where someone shares their calendar with you and they send you three or four different times and you click one and it instantly puts an appointment on both your calendars. It makes it, it gets rid of the the back and forth. You know, once someone agrees to meeting with you, you want to make it as easy as possible for them. And so by just quickly sending, you know, five or six different times where they can speak with you uh, and not having to go back and forth with, Hey, what works for you Friday? All right. Well, how about the morning? No, I can't do the morning. Like that sucks. So don't do that. Also, I recently purchased something for $8, which has changed my life. And it is computer glasses, glasses that I wear all day while staring at the screen that block some of the UV light from the computer screen. And, you know, maybe this is just specific to me, but I would come home from work, you know, after staring at this computer screen for 10 hours and like my eyes would be so strained and I would have a headache. I wear these $8 glasses and like, I feel my eyes feel like they do right when I wake up in the morning at the end of the day. So uh, that's an interesting purchase too. You know, these computer glasses have come up in a previous conversation when we were talking about sales and then I had a listener say, I love computer glasses. So it's striking a chord. So then what you're describing at eight bucks at, at the price point then sounds like it is primarily 
a matter of just blocking the, the light and not giving you any sort of prescription eye correction love, just just a bit of UV or blue light blocking? Yeah, that's exactly it. I don't have, I don't wear glasses. If I did, I would get these lenses put in them and I'm sure you can get these types of blue light blocking lenses if you already have glasses at any eyeglass place. That's cool. Well, so then tell me, uh, feel free to name the, the brand. Was it Amazon or, or where did you acquire it? How could we all? Yeah, it was Amazon. I typed in, you know, computer light blocking glasses. And, you know, there, there's some that are more expensive. And actually, there was a company that, that was on Shark Tank last week that, that's got a, another pair of glasses. I think theirs are like 50 or $60. I honestly don't know what the difference is. My $8 ones are fabulous. So uh, try them out. I mean, I don't know that they're the most fashionable, but, uh, but try them out. And if you want to upgrade, you know, upgrade, upgrade later. Oh, that's excellent. Thank you. All right, cool. Well, now could you share with us a favorite habit, you know, personal practice of yours that's really been helpful? Yeah, uh, I've got a few. You know, I, I try to meditate in the mornings. I'm not great about it. You know, they say you're supposed to do it before coffee, and I really like having coffee first thing. So I'm getting better at practicing meditation in the morning. But the practice I really want to share is a creativity practice. And so I've got a uh, about a 30 minute drive to this startup that I work at now. And my old morning routine would be to wake up, uh, you know, consume some, some online news and, uh, and then start listening to podcasts. And I would probably listen to, you know, two, three, four podcasts in the morning, all, you know, sped up one and a half times. And I'd get to work and I'd be, you know, a little bit uh, on edge. I'd be stressed out. It's like, oh, I didn't get through all my podcasts. I'm listening to, you know, fast voices all morning long. It really wasn't the most, uh, relaxing start to the day. And, you know, you and I are both, we're podcast professionals. We got to listen to a lot of podcasts and know what's going on out there. But so I still listen to podcasts in the morning, but for a piece of my commute now, I don't listen to podcasts and I turn off the radio and I sit in silence in my car as I drive to work. And, uh, this is going to sound really funny, but I look at things on the side of the road or, you know, that I, that I, that I see, and I see a dog on the side of the road and I'll start to make up uh, a story about that dog, you know, out loud in my car. I'll say that dog is named Frisky and Frisky came on a boat here from China and on that boat, he made a friend. And so, you know, I start to do this and Pete, stay with me. It sounds crazy. But now when I get to work, I feel like my creativity and uh, my original thinking capabilities are really firing on all cylinders and it's, uh, you know, it's been an interesting way to cut back on a lot of the stress that I have in the morning and start these creative juices flowing. You know, it wasn't long ago where we didn't have smartphones and we weren't filling every single second of our time being in front of a screen, being entertained. You know, we used to have quiet time with alone with ourselves. Now we rarely have that. And I think our minds need an outlet for the creativity. I think we all have creativity and creative juices pumping through us, but we need to manifest this and we need to practice those and we need an outlet for them. And, you know, by sitting quietly for, for five, 10 minutes, kind of similar to, to meditating, I let those creative juices flow and uh, the results have been pretty cool. That is intriguing. Well, well, it's funny as you, as you tell a frisky story, uh, it just brings a smile to my face it, it, and it just seems like a pleasant way to live life in the sense of you're noticing things and then you're allowing the brain to play a little bit. And in so doing, that would it just makes sense that, that as a natural outcome of that is is more free flow and creative thought. Yeah, you know, I'm 
I'm looking forward to having kids because then I won't be a crazy person telling stories to myself in the car. I can uh, make up stories for, for my kids. And, uh, and I, I think that would be a great outlet for it. That's cool. And is there a particular nugget or piece of insight that you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks that they maybe repeat it back to you? Uh, yeah. I mean, it just kind of harkens back to the, to the not taking no, you know, it's really just what I, what I said before is that you're not going to get what you don't ask for. And, you know, everyone's just trying to, uh, to have their best and most happy path through life, trying to help others where they can. And, you know, this is a, this is a good way to achieve that. And Alex, if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Yeah, I'd point them to the podcast, wallstreetoasis.com. You'll find the podcast there. And, uh, you know, I'd love to hear, you know, any questions as well. You can email me, alex at wallstreetoasis.com. Happy to, happy to help and uh, anything that I can do. Oh, beautiful. Thank you. And you have a final challenge or call to action you'd share to folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Yep. I would say the rejection therapy, do it for 30 days. You'll be amazed by what comes of it. Like I said in the beginning, it's very, very, very difficult. And by the end, you will be walking up to strangers in bars, asking them for God knows what, uh, but you'll have the confidence and humility uh, that you never thought you would have before. That's awesome. Well, Alex, thank you so much for taking the time here. I wish you tons of luck with uh, the podcast and your fundraising and your storytelling and uh, future child rearing and all you're up to. <laughs> Pete, thank you so much for having me. This was, this was really fun. I really loved Alex's take that if you keep asking and going through this process, you become more humble. And then as a result, you kind of realize that no one really cares that much when it comes to you asking and you think it's a big deal, but it's really not. And they're more concerned themselves and what they're up to. I think this is a powerful reframe if you're ever getting a little bit caught up and in, in sort of self-conscious and there's like, hey, you know what? Uh, there's a great quote along the lines of, we would care little about how others thought about us if we realized how seldom they did so. Something like that. It's one of my mom's favorites. And it connects with me. It resonates here in the context of asking. It's not a big deal. People aren't freaked out, worried. You can say, can you believe this person asked it? No, it's all good. And it's a lot of fun to go there, just sort of see what happens and make a game of it with that rejection therapy. So much good stuff there. Again, if you want to check out the transcript or the links to pieces that we mentioned here, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F276. If you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe. You'll hear from our next guest. It is Danny Dover. And Danny made quite a splash with his TED Talk about how he accomplished his entire bucket list. And he's learned a thing or two along the way about goal setting, goal achieving, and how that's done well. Until next time, peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.